0: UX Podcast Episode
1: 120
0: Hi and welcome to UX Podcast, balancing business, technology and users every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden. I'm James Roy Lawson. And I'm Per Axboom. And this week, we are interviewing Melissa Perry.
1: Yeah, it'll be excellent fun. Uh, Melissa's talking at UXLX, and if you've been a long-time listener to the show, you will know that this is the conference that we basically visit every year and it was the start
0: starting point of the podcast that we visited it together yeah. back uh, in the day <laughs> in 2011 and we've yeah. um, we've partnered up with um, mm-hmm. UXLX um this year to um bring you coverage before the event and well during and after the event as well
1: yeah so you'll definitely want to check out the website ux-lx.com and see the speakers there cuz we'll, we'll be talking to many of them and so tweet us uh, types of questions you want us to ask and who you want us to talk to. Uh, Alan Cooper will be there. Dan Klin of the Understanding Group. Uh, Amber Case, who is a cyborg anthropologist. Abby Jones from Google. And more and more and more. Uh, so it will be just great wide spectrum of, of different topics uh, as per usual. And s- sunny Lisbon
0: as well. Always great fun. <laughs> you're, you're, Late you're, nights. You're overselling it, Pat. <laughs> um, look, the point, the point is. You, want, you can get to meet us. <laughs> Shh. The point is, it always sells out. Um, so don't leave it too late to buy your ticket. Um, you can get on the website now. And uh, oh, to be honest, if you haven't bought a ticket before listening to us talk to Melissa, then you will do afterwards.
1: Mm. Yes. So Melissa is doing a full day workshop. Uh, Melissa is a product and UX consultant uh, at her own company, Products Labs. Uh, she's a teacher, she's a coach, she's a speaker. Uh, and she's mostly famous, I think, for her talks and workshops on Lean UX, uh, which is what she'll be doing in, in Lisbon as well. And she coaches a lot as well. And uh, She coaches product managers to answer two important questions. Should we build this and why? So uh, let's uh, jump into the interview with Melissa. Melissa. <laughs> Start us off by telling us a bit about how did you get into this world. What, what did you do in school? How what, what was your first job? Uh, why did you do wanted to UX?
2: Yeah, I. It's really funny because uh, I started realizing how all the like stars have aligned on my path here <laughs> recently. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where uh, when you're in school or when you're doing things, you don't realize how it kind of relates to what you'll do in the future. So. Um, I guess I, my background is in operations research engineering, so that's why I studied at Cornell. Um, so I I was very into like statistics and optimization. Then uh, I didn't I was studying chemical engineering actually before that, and I hated it. Okay, it was not anything like chemistry, which I liked. <laughs> it was more like let's figure out these calculations on pipes and stuff, and I hated that. So I got out of it, and I tried to find like a more businessy engineering, which was um, operations research. But at the same time. I was also working for Cornell Marketing, um, designing all the promotions and posters and stuff for the campus, uh, because I had uh, studied in high school um, how to do Photoshop. So I always loved like this little component of design, and I was doing engineering, and I couldn't really find something that fit me very well. Like There was no, uh, there was no career path that they told me about for you know UX or product management, so I had no idea what I wanted to do everybody was um, graduating from my program and either going into finance or supply chain management and I really didn't want to like work in a factory at Pepsi and optimize supply chain that's what people were doing so um, it kind of started when my friend from uh, college he went to work at a company called capital IQ and they said hey we're hiring uh, we're hiring people we're coming to the to the campus to interview developers and I said I can kind of code but I don't really want to code can I can I talk to you guys? And I explained my background um, to the hiring manager. They were like, just come in, chat with us. It'll be fine. And I was explaining to him what I liked. And he's like, oh, you're an engineer and you can do Photoshop. You could be a product manager for our company. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> but that sounds good. So I learned at Capital IQ how to do product management and UX. And at the, that time, uh, there was no difference. It was about 10 years ago. Um I'm sure like UX existed as, um, you know, as a principal back then, but at the same time, we just kind of like shoved it all into one person at that company. And then the next company I went to is the same thing. I just found like everybody was a product manager and a UX designer and we just called them product managers.
0: Yeah. T- yeah. 10 years ago, we didn't, we didn't really say in business context anyway, UX didn't exist really at all. Um, we had lots of other different names for what we did, um, but it was generally, we knew what we were doing, but yeah, and we, we, we accepted whatever the company called you. Um, <laughs> called you. Yeah. A, basically, yeah, so information architect or interaction designer or, or, or whatever, product manager in your mm-hmm. case.
1: Yep. Uh, I tracked it back to actually the first time I used UX on my blog was 2008, I believe.
2: Oh, Wow. Okay, which is actually ver- that was
1: when I think someone from an Adaptive Path was doing a talk in Sweden.
2: Yeah, though. that was that was <laughs> right about the time too mm. that I, I was at Capital IQ. So
0: <laughs> mm. I think I held out. I avoided it till what was it? After we started the podcast. Yeah, after we started the podcast. <laughs> so yeah, 2011 or 12, <laughs> I think, when I gave in.
1: <laughs> so one of the reasons we're talking to you now, of course, is that we'll be meeting you in Lisbon in May, and you'll be doing a full day workshop there, which which is a first for uh, UXLX doing full day, full day workshops. Uh, so yeah, what will people who attend your workshop learn?
0: Yeah, the workshop's called, before you answer, the workshop is called Lean Product Management for UX.
2: Yes. So, um, yeah, I, I'm pretty excited to teach this workshop. It's it's geared towards trying to teach UX designers about product management. Uh, when they reached out to me from UX Lisbon about doing a workshop, they said they're seeing more and more UX designers trying to learn about product which is really interesting to me. Um, so I I kind of devised this one day workshop um, that focuses a lot on filling in the gaps for you uh, for UXers to learn a little bit more about product management. So they're going to learn about you know what makes good product metrics. How do we measure products? Uh, how do we merge that that customer value and business value and find things that actually move the business forward? How do we actually do uh testing our hypotheses. How do we write hypotheses? How do we prioritize? Mm-hmm. How do we do roadmaps? I think a lot of that kind of gets lost. I see companies also struggle with those things just in general with product management. And that's what I do. I, I come in and I coach them and I help them figure out how to prioritize things, how to think about it the right way, how to find customer problems. And I think UX designers are uniquely positioned to be able to really grasp that stuff cuz they worry about the customer problems already. They're always they're already thinking about the users. So they're light years ahead of most of the people I work with. It's just a matter of also getting them into the rhythm of considering the business values, seeing the objectives for that and really measuring strategically how these things are going to move our business forward.
0: Something that we've we've seen or noticed, well, particularly on the podcast this last half year, we've had a few um, episodes and discussions around this kind of spectrum side of things i mean we've we've called it we've given it different names i mean we've we've called it everything from the demise of ux to ux strategy or um or utility of ux but but it all comes down to the similar kind of thing that there's um you've got product management on one side and or a customer experience and then ux on on kind of our side and a mm-hmm. lot of people on this side uh, either land grabbing or or worrying about how they're transitioning um or, or understanding, starting to understand more about the the product management world out there, mm-hmm. um, and and it's interesting to to see you coming from the the other side, maybe more on this one.
2: Yeah, it's it's been really interesting too. I, I've seen the same thing, and it's funny because we call it like fourteen different terms, but I think we're all talking about the <laughs> same thing. Um, <laughs> and it's just trying to find you know this balance of being strategic about solving our users' problems, and. That's something too, that I started talking about and wrote a blog post on recently is, you know, what's the difference between product management and UX and how do we, how do we get into that? And it apparently struck a chord with a lot of people. <laughs> it was one mm. of those things I just threw together on a Sunday and then it blew up and I went, wow, okay. People are <laughs> upset about this. Um, mm. <laughs> so I found- Oh, they were, ups-
0: they were upset, not just kind of, um, I know that pair and I both shared the post, um, but, but. So some people weren't just kind of pleased with the content. They were actually upset with the content.
2: No. So it was more like they're upset about the situation. They were actually very pleased with the the content. I got so many emails in my inbox too that was like, thank you so much for writing this because I've been having this debate at work for years and nobody will mm-hmm. let me do like UX. They're like, that's not your job. You're a product manager or product managers will be like, uh, I'm," or UX designers will be like, they won't let me make business decisions. They won't let me, you know, influence this stuff. Uh, and I think we have such a problem of separating the roles too drastically that we have no middle ground there. And mm. it becomes a land grab. I'm experiencing it with the companies I work with too, where we'll have the UX design team, uh, whenever the product manager tries to suggest something that has to do with de- design or you know the flow of the app, they'll, they'll be like, no, that's our job. You're not allowed to do that. Just stick to the business requirements. Mm. Don't get into solution space. You're in the problem space. That's where you should focus. And I think that's a real huh. detriment to companies to not have that kind of collaboration. To me, the best teams I've ever worked on or with, uh, we, we don't sit there and go, that's not your job. You're not allowed to do that. You know, you have a team that works very closely together. And if you know a developer wants to do user research this time, go do user research. As long as you kind of know what you're doing and you have an interest in it, I always find whoever wants to pick up those tasks and do it, it's just for the better of the company to move that way.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, the the it's a real kick in the teeth for collaboration when you have that kind of um, boxing of, of roles with such such you know, defined edges to them.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep, it's too it's too cut and dry. People consider that. Uh, I have the problem too that when I when I go in and interview at companies, um, or I go in and I talk to people at these companies, Still, they'll make me choose. They're like, are you a UX designer or a product manager? Like last year, uh, I was talking to to somebody at a company considering a job, and they were like, well, we need to know what team to put you on. It's either product management or UX. And I was like, I do equally both of those things. Like, I design all the UX part. I do all the product management. So I don't know why you want me to choose between these things. Uh, and I haven't really found any company that has a role uh, there's kind of these product designers who are coming up as well. I've seen that role out there a lot. Um, I thought that was the way that was going to merge these roles. It sounds perfect, right? Like product and designer it just sounds like it merges it. But now I'm seeing companies treat that more as visual designer as well. They don't, They don't. They put nice flashy terms on things, but they don't understand what those roles are, like what they're supposed to do.
1: So it seems like the role names are causing confusion more than they're helping yeah uh, the way we've been talking about product management on the show has actually been more around the fact that the ux or the term ux is being watered down because anyone is calling themselves a UXer, even if you're just doing wireframes and not user research or even if you're if, even if you're an art director you call mm-hmm. yourself a UXer. yeah yeah uh, so you don't really know what people do anymore when they say they're in ux so we've been looking for a term that can help you define your role better, which has been product manager. Mm-hmm. So that's we also, the way we've been looking at it. We also threw mm-hmm.
0: in the um, uh, macro and micro UX Yeah, to try and help distinguish it. That, um, Interesting. Um, so, so micro UX would be um, what we used to call interaction design and, and maybe the, um, the more deliverable side of things that would get into the nitty-gritty of the, mm-hmm. of the end results, whereas macro UX would be more um, broad scale and, and um, holistic and closer to product management.
2: Yeah, that that's interesting too. I haven't heard it split up before uh, between micro and macro, but I like the way of thinking of it that way. I think it's just one of those things where you can't completely remove product management from UX, and you can't completely remove UX from product management. Otherwise, you end up with terrible products. So it seems natural to me that you would want high collaboration in those areas where you make those decisions, and yet I don't see that happening. <laughs> I think it's mostly though because people just don't understand what ux is like you were saying um I've seen a lot of people from the agency world now call themselves ux designers and they'll come in and it's it's like a different type of thing when you work from agencies i've I've had that problem with consulting too every time I do a do a redesign for a company or I try to help them with their ux they expect it just to be pretty and you know hand it off and it's been um I started consulting on my own like two years ago so I've been kind of figuring out how to really see if, you know, my clients understand what user experience is before I engage in it because I I personally don't like, you know, not doing user research when I do this. It that becomes a huge struggle. You think it wouldn't be, but I'll I'll go into talk to people about their website and they'll be like, "Yeah, we want to, you know, we want to completely re- do the UX, we want to make it a better experience, we want to have beautiful visual design i'm like okay great all that sounds fantastic i need to talk to five of your customers um so that we can start understanding where the problems are and they go oh no 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 no. you don't have to do that that's a waste of time we already know what we want we've talked to them a bunch and then uh you get into these conversations with them while you're working and for example one client i had we we were doing a filter and they wanted to put these uh these tags on the filter, they had to be able to go through it really fast. And they said, well, we have hundreds and hundreds of tags they can choose from. We really need a sophisticated way to go through it. Uh, So I designed it, and they said, oh, no, it's not big enough. People could tag things up to 100 times. And I said, but are they? Like, do you have any statistics or any, like, data, or have you talked to them about how many tags they normally use oh no we don't have that but you should just design it so that they can mm-hmm. do up to 100 and i'm like that's a waste of space that's <laughs> you know we can probably solve this debate we go on back and forth about it for days I was like we could solve this debate in like two seconds if you just had data or if you just let me talk to somebody uh but they don't see the value in doing that for for contracting and i see that same kind of mentality come from people who come uh, in, in people who come from the agency world who are used to doing those visual designs or doing projects like this, because, you know, it's more about appeasing the client than it really is about appeasing the customer. Um, and UX became a trendy thing to talk about. And it, I don't I like the, the way uh, people in the agency model really do bring to life stuff like they always create really nice, very beautiful products, but um, they kind of lack that substance underneath if, it, if it's a heavily visual design company that they've worked at mm-hmm. before.
1: That is the key to it all, isn't it? That you actually, as a UXer, you care about the data as well. Yeah. And not, not only data about the users, but also data about what does it bring to the company in the end. mm mm-hmm.
0: I think I'm I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of the um, the hypothesis way of working, um, wh- whether we call it lean or uh, something else. Uh, scientific method. Exactly the scientific <laughs> method. I think <laughs> you know just just having that approach mm-hmm. is something that's very healthy. And as Per says, I think it it's in my experience it can be missing from um, a lot of projects. Um, uh, not just the agency side. I think another it can be also when. Oh, several situations, but I think another example would be when you're working with enterprise software, mm-hmm. where you've got an extra, you've got an extra layer in between you and the customer because you've got the end users, but then you've got clients who actually buy, or the the customers of the the enterprise um, organisation who buy it. So um, I think there that can be also difficult and difficult to find the data to back it up because you've got the sales process and the end user oh, process that's such a um, wonky process <laughs> yeah, yeah but you, you, it's it's uh, yeah and it's it's different it's different compared to if you're working with a a, a product an app or, mm-hmm. or, a, or a website where you're you, you're actually driving it straight to the sales process to the end user it's mm-hmm. um yeah data is very useful i think mm-hmm. in those situations when you've actually got the ability to get it
2: yeah and what i've noticed too is in in those situations uh i I worked at uh, a company that was a b2b software uh for seo and i was you know the the lead ux designer there so i was the only ux designer there so (laughs) i did the ux for everything (laughs) um it was again one of those things where we had like six product managers and they would just shove things at me and make me design it and they didn't understand what ux was they they only understood it as visual design But at that company as well, I found that the salespeople would uh, promise, you know, their clients pretty much whatever they wanted without really consulting about the UX on it or the tech. They'll be like, is this feasible? And tech will go, yep, we can actually build that. And then they go, "Okay, great, you're building it. You're like, wait, 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 let's have a conversation about this. Let's Mm -hmm. let's actually figure it out. Um, And that's, you know, it's the nature of sales structures, too. Right. Salespeople get paid on how much to sell. So if they sell a lot of stuff, that's great. Like, fantastic. They make a lot of money. Uh, But that doesn't really work beneficially for UX. So I try to, as well, um, what I really, really love doing is training salespeople on how to do user research and turn them into, like, a nice little SWAT user research team and have have them go out and, you know, tell them the right questions, like, ask. Have them not just try to solve people's problems, but find out what those problems are and communicate that back and if you can get into a jive like that there's a company that does it in england uh it's so valuable like they they interact with customers all day and you have just this constant feedback of problems like coming in that you can actually work with the team to solve and i i think that's like the most beneficial way to do sales and they're good at it like they're really good at talking to people and like prying out the information and they love it and uh you know, there's just this whole force that companies have that they could take advantage of, but they're not because they're just trying to sell their thing very narrow-mindedly um, without actually exploring all the different ways that they, you know, all the different products they can make, all the solutions they could possibly come up with mm-hmm. just by getting that information, just by getting those problems out.
0: Exactly. Understanding. So training the salespeople to, to understand the why yeah. of, of their sales leads uh, rather than just provide a solution.
2: Exactly. Yeah, they, yeah. they jump into it. It's like I was in the same company. I finally convinced them to let me do user research. That took a long time to convince. Uh, And I remember they gave me like a salesperson to go with me to the clients to babysit me and make sure like I didn't say anything bad. So we were sitting in the room with one guy and he was telling me about his problems. And I was like really excited because there was a lot of things we could solve. And the salesperson was sitting there trying to solve all his problems. Well, you can do that and you can do this and we have these products and we can build this for you and we can do that and I was like, stop it. <laughs> can yeah. you please stop? Like, I just need to do research. And what happens too is that the client you know, would shut up. He would stop talking about his problems because he was just like, oh, they're gonna solve it anyway so I don't have to think about this. Uh, and you lose all that wonderful dynamic and that feedback. So it, that's, that's a struggle I see with a lot of enterprise clients but I also see they're, like, so well set up to do better testing. Whenever I, I do, like, my workshops on MVPs, I always get enterprise people there who are like, oh, but we can't do MVP testing. We're a B2B company. You know, we're bigger. We have, we have more risk associated with what we do. I'm like, yeah, well, that's why you should be testing, too, because you do have higher risk. Um, but I, I got, I like the B2B companies because you know who your clients are. Like you can literally go to their office and sit down with them rather than consumer companies where if you want to get prospective clients, you have to go out on the streets and go to Starbucks and try to talk to people. And you know, it's really hard um, to find who your customer is in that case. B2B mm. companies, you literally could show up on their doorstep and like walk in. Mm. So you've got all these people to talk to. They're also pretty passionate about uh, using your products because they, they usually help them when they're working. So we used to do testing with them and put Uh, feature flags on it. So we would only turn it on for like a select five customers, let them try out new products, new MVP type things, see if it worked, you know, and then we would go back and actually invest in building the whole things. And it's so easy to do that with B2B companies, but people are really scared about it because they think it's, they think that it will provide a bad experience uh, for the customers. And that's just not true.
1: I really like what you're saying here that Lean UX and and MVPs can be applied to any type of company, Mm -hmm. any type of organization whatever the size because that's a debate we've been having with other interviewees is that it can't be applied in larger organizations it's a startup thing and and what do you have to say to that oh no
2: i believe it could be applied everywhere i've seen i've seen large companies adopting it as well uh and i think that's smart it's just a systematic way to test your hypotheses i think it's it's kind of arrogant and to assume that large companies don't need to do that, right? They probably they have a lot of cushion to fall back on, which startups don't. But you know, they still are not always right, and that's the whole point of you know uh, lean UX, lean product management. It's just saying, you know what? We don't know everything, so we're going to go out and actually find out what we don't know before we commit to doing this, and we'll see if it's a good idea or not. And I think everybody associates these principles as well with, um, you know, Eric Reese's buttons to nowhere MVP stuff. And to me, like, that's, that's not like a great MVP. I think it could be in a certain situation, but, Uh, For me, like a minimum viable product is just the least amount of effort that you can do to learn. And that can be in all sorts of things. It could be, you know, building some kind of functional prototype of your product, it could be Mm -hmm. building a minimal version. But I see that as later stages um, of an MVP. I think the beginning stages of an MVP are, you know, quick tests to really see if people are interested. They could be pitches, Mm -hmm. they could be, um, I do like the Wizard of Oz things all the time where they look real and on the background they're all manual. But it's just trying to learn if people will want it. And you can do that in any amount whatsoever. And the large corporations, too, I I always get asked these questions. And they're like, well, it takes three years for us to ship something. So we can't possibly do an MVP. You know, we can't do these things that you're talking about where you spin them around in a week or two. I'm like, you don't have to. (laughs) You don't have to spin something out in a week. But if it takes you three years to ship something and you could test something in a year... And find out if you should spend the next two years building it. That's pretty good. Like that's a pretty good skill. You reduced it by a third. It's not about you know doing things in a week or two. I push. I push companies that are able to do that to do it as fast as possible. But it's just about taking that time frame and instead of waiting three years to learn if somebody's going to like it or not, you do it as fast as you can. You do it in months. You do it in a year. You just break it down. Uh, and people don't understand that when we talk about lean, and I think that's why the word is kind of just falling out of favor a lot, which makes me sad. because uh, Like just, most
1: of our words in this Everything. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. And it's just, it's a, it's a lack of understanding. In
0: six months, it's gone. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. It's just a lack of understanding with, um, you know, what does agile mean? What does lean mean? Everybody sees these surface these surface things, even user experience, mm. like we were talking about. It's become a buzzword. Uh, mm. Nobody knows what it means anymore. Uh, but I, the principles are still so valuable. So for me, like as a, as a consultant and a coach, I, I try to like strip away all these buzzwords that I use when I talk to people and I just try to talk about what you're going to get out of using these techniques. And that responds pretty well. People mm-hmm. respond well to it.
1: I like what you're saying now about a quick experiment. It can be a year. Yeah. Because that's what people generally don't understand. When you say, usually when you hear people talking about Lean UX and they say, you do a quick experiment, it doesn't have to cost much. You, th- you think days or weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to, it has to be in relation to what the whole project is. Yeah.
2: If it's an $8 mm. billion dollar project and you can test something in $3 million, it's a pretty decent, you know, mm. scale to look at. Uh, I think, yeah, it's just, it's not about being cheap. It's not about spinning things up mindlessly with no, no way to go. It's just about trying to learn faster because when we take so long and put all our eggs in one basket with a solution, and then release something after months or a year. You know, we have all that lead time to learning. So it's just about reducing that lead time and learning as fast as you can. That's the whole point of this.
0: I think you could also, I'm thinking about it now as well, that um, when you're testing or creating something to learn something, then it's just about making something that's a shareable artifact. Mm -hmm. And you possibly don't even need to share it with the end user to learn stuff. Yep. Yeah. I'm thinking that you could share it with people inside the organization. That's, I guess, going to learn you could potentially give you the insight you need to do another spin.
2: Exactly. I, I think that's huge. Like I would always advocate for trying to get it in front of customers as much as possible. But when I work with companies that are really, really far from doing that, I just try to get them to show it to somebody else. Just anybody else, right, in the organization. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's not on the product or tech team. Show it to the customer support people because they're dealing with the questions all day. And they could probably give you pretty good feedback on it. But I think that's like the first step in trying to get people comfortable is just show it to somebody else.
0: I think I even got, a, I even got a guy, um, one of the ones I did recently. The, um, one of the system testers came in and tried one of the things we were working on. And that was excellent because they, cool. they, 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 so, they were so good at knowing exactly every single thing that this product did. Mm-hmm. They, they knew because it was their job to systematically test it. So, so when they came in, there was straight away questions about, um, you know, what would happen. Mm. and, and we, could, we could quickly iterate and, and come back with a different version that, that was better fulfilling the purpose.
2: Oh, that's really cool. I like that.
1: Yeah, I have one, one system tester right now who's my best devil's advocate. She's, mm. questioning, she's questioning everything, which yeah. is awesome. <laughs> I like it.
2: Yeah, I like mm. people who ask questions. Anybody mm. who asks good questions, I, I want on my team. I want people to keep going, why, 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 why. Mm. Uh, I think that's the only way you get better. Is if you if you assume that you don't know all the answers and you, hmm. you want to find them out, you're curious.
1: So you've been working with Lean UX for a while now. How has Lean UX changed over the years? Because I'm guessing it's not the holy grail. We don't stop here. I mean, that development process has to change as well. Have you seen it, anything happen to it?
2: Yeah. I, I guess when I was starting out in this area too, like I said, with the small experiments, we were all very much pushing people to test things as rapidly as possible. And considering it in a week or so. And as I've been working with larger companies and bigger organizations, um, we've realized, you know, that scale could be very different. I, I think that's been one of the, like like we just talked about, I think that mm. that's been mm. a big revelation for me. I think this notion of, you know, getting data-driven answers has really become uh, more focused In Lean UX, I I think a lot of that is coming up. Uh, More people are understanding the importance of data from that. Uh, I think it's just going to keep evolving. In the future, I I think our terms are going to change. That's probably going to be the biggest thing because I think all these terms are a little bit falling out of favor. But we're seeing more and more corporations actually take this on. They have different requirements. So uh, in the Lean UX community, I think at the beginning, we were very much focused on doing the practice so, how do you do lean UX? How do you do design studios? And you know, tips from Jeff's book. Uh, now, I think we're all realizing too that there's so many organizational changes that have to happen in order to support this way of working. And I think mm-hmm. that's really the biggest shift that we're seeing with lean UX. Um, so, I know myself and a lot of other practitioners have have realize that we can't just teach the tools. We have to teach people the way to think and we have to teach managers in the organizations and people who make those decisions, um, about these practices and why they work from their business perspective. So I'm seeing more people go into almost those management type consulting, which sounds horrible to say, cause I know nobody likes management consultants, but <laughs> they're turning that to like, to train it. And I, I, myself have been working with a lot of, a lot more executives, um, in the companies I go into where, you know, you're sitting now with the CEO, uh, I work with a lot of, you know, very, I wouldn't call them startups anymore because they've been around for like five years and they're profitable, but they're in that transition where they're, you know, the found they've grown so much, like the one I'm working at right now is 500 people. So they've grown enough where the founders can't make the decisions for the product anymore, right? They have to scale, they have to worry about other things. Um, so I work with them a lot to get them comfortable and to understand, you know, let's let this come from the team. This is the way that they work. They have all these hypotheses they want to test. Um, It's okay for them to test. It's okay for them not to have a year-long roadmap with buckets of product features they're going to do because they're going to find out what those features are by testing. And getting management to understand that um, has been a real struggle. And uh, I think I'm, I'm learning myself more and more that I have to do a lot of convincing on that side. The teams usually buy into this pretty well, but convincing the management to step off a little bit to like rethink about how they consider product roadmaps. It's not just, uh, you know, a list of items to build over the next year. It's not a Gantt chart. It's more of a strategic direction the company wants to go in and areas to explore and build products around. But they're full. All my product roadmaps are just full of hypotheses unless they're validated. If we validate something, we're saying, okay, great, let's actually go build that. Let's make sure it's a nice, robust solution for it. Um, in an iterative way where we'll start minimal and keep adding on as we learn, but we validated it. The other stuff is, okay, we want to explore this area. Uh, we want to make sure this is a real problem. We're going to test in it. And we just kind of lined up our hypotheses for the next quarter. That's how we've been considering the the product roadmaps instead of treating them like a Gantt chart. Hmm.
0: A, a, an important skill there, or a question that I have then, is um, how do you prioritize the different hypotheses?
2: Oh, um, so we I usually weight it, I have a different scale for every company, but it's uh what I normally teach is value versus mm. uh effort. I'm trying to remove rem- I think no, I don't keep the effort on there. Actually I take everybody always says, why don't you prioritize against effort? But I, I do strength of the customer problem versus value to the business. So I make mm. these two yeah. axes on a chart, um, and then I take every hypothesis and I say If we solve this problem for users, is it a big enough problem? Is there a big enough market? For example, if you're a B2B company, how many customers do you have that actually have that problem? How many companies are in your portfolio right now where you can actually take money for them to solve this problem? So we'll look at strength of customer problem and then the value to the business. So the value to the business is related to whatever KPI you're solving for, um, your metric, your key performance indicator. So for example, if you're doing retention, and you're solving a customer problem, you would look at it and say, if we solve this problem for users, how much do we think we'll gain in retention? Like how many mm. percentage points do we think will go up? And we take a guess, mm. and this is all you know, a little bit hypothetical until you prove it, but it does allow us to be a little bit more strategic about what we do, and also see if there's things on our roadmap that are not going to get us to that metric. Uh, mm. That happens a lot. People will put things for you know, acquisition when they really want to concentrate on retention. It's like... This quarter, we want to do retention. If we do acquisition, we'll be a little bit too unfocused. Okay. And you, you surface those things when you start prioritizing. I don't do effort mm-hmm. because I test everything with a minimum viable product usually. So to me, there's always usually a way to break things down into smaller chunks. Mm-hmm. And we can kind of customize our effort depending on what we need. So that that's why I don't go too yeah. much into effort. But I will try to see is this like an impossible thing to do versus a realistic thing to do that's that's kind of where i get onto it
1: when you're saying acquisition and retention now you're referencing uh, the pirate metrics yeah. i think uh say them for me because i, I don't sure. know them like uh, revenue
2: it's acquisition uh, yeah. activation which means how do we have somebody make the first move on our platform and kind of become a customer mm. um revenue retention referral Uh, So I teach, I teach all my clients to really like figure out which metrics they want to focus on and have teams organize around those metrics and try to solve them. Uh, That works really well because it provides a lot of focus on the team. So you're you're not going, oh, I've got all these like ideas in the backlog. Let's just build them. You go through your backlog and you say, what is our goal for the next quarter? All right. These things are, I don't actually like backlogs either, uh, but you look at your things that you want to do and you're like, ah, this goes to retention, right? Like, so we're going to look at these things. None of this has anything to do with retention. We're not going to worry about them now. We'll worry about oh, them no. next quarter. I think there's, I like to have backlogs of hypotheses rather than feature ideas.
0: Mm. Well, that, well that's, that That sounds much more healthy. Yeah. Because, because it means it leaves the, it leaves the door open to decide exactly what you do. Exactly.
2: Mm. Uh, I yeah. I don't like backlogs because people treat them as a promise that will actually get to it. And then I I remember like my second job as a product manager I had something like 2,000 tickets in the backlog, and I looked at it. It was a small company, too. We were around for six months. We already had 2,000 things in the backlog. And you're looking at it, and you're going, you know, I put this in here six months ago when we were starting. Now, you know, we're a $60 million business this is not what we need anymore, but it's still Mm. in the backlog. And they're like, when when are you going to get to it? When are you going to build it? Um, And I hate stuff like that. So, and it just becomes a time sink, you know, always grooming it, always going back to it. So I try to keep just like the last, next five hypotheses we want to test in it and then split them out as we go. And I'd never let it go any longer than that.
1: Mm. That's a way more structured way of working than I'm doing right now. (laughs) (laughs) I hate to admit (laughs) Yeah, I love it. I, I don't like.
2: I'm very. Uh, I I don't like committing to things that we don't know will work. So I I think the backlogs always make people angsty like that. And I, I get into conversations with people I coach too about how should we do backlog grooming. I'm like, can I see your backlog? And it's got you know 400 tickets in it. I'm like, how are you going to possibly groom this? It's going to take you. You know, they said, oh, we want to go systematically through and make sure we have enough information. I'm like, do you even care about like 399 of these tickets right now? Like you're going to, you, every sprint we do, you pretty much put something else in it anyway. Like when was the last time you grabbed something out of here? They're like, maybe we grab two things out of the product backlog a month, right? Otherwise we come up with new things to build. So I think they're just a lot of overhead and a big time sink for most people rather than being a helpful thing.
0: I think that's a good that's a good kind of metric to our to, way of measuring it if you ask someone how, how many do these do you what's your burn rate of things in your backlog yeah mm. I say, well it's actually plus plus 20 every month <laughs> well there we are then you need to yeah. you need to alter the way you're working because you're you're not working in a sustainable manner yeah
2: yeah and then I I see like a lot of debates and churn over over that and you're like this is a silly thing to like be fighting about especially within the team. Like I'd rather have debates about our hypotheses and what we're going to do for users. And yet I see a lot of people debate how to clean like how to groom a backlog or how to write user stories and like these these aren't debates. Like we need to just decide what to do and go on with it. Like let's not create more work for ourselves. Let's not create a lot of overhead. Um, this isn't the point of why we're here, right? We're not, we weren't hired for this company to debate how to groom
0: backlogs.
1: I'm going to bring this to my team tomorrow.
0: <laughs> Let <laughs> me know how fun. it goes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I believe it's time for our one to seven scales, All right. right? I reckon it is. Yeah. Do you want to go first? Should I go first? So oh, the way uh, this works now, we have yeah. to explain it to the listeners now as well. This is the first we time. Explain yep. why seven. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're, we're, uh, we're really bad at closing interviews because we, we just go, okay, so we have to finish now, which seems really rude when we do it usually. Mm-hmm. So this was a nice way of segueing into an ending of the interview. Uh, and we've thought of dozens of different ways of doing it as well. But <laughs> so in our backlog, we have others as well. But this is the one we want to go with now. Uh, uh, James picked two questions. I picked two questions. Uh, and it's uh, something that you have to rate on a scale of one to seven. And uh, we were afraid, <laughs> James flagged it. Well, She's going to want to talk about each of these questions as well. <laughs> and we're going to say, no, you're not allowed to talk okay. about the questions when we ask them. You're allowed to rate it. But you're allowed to comment on it after we've asked all four of them. Okay.
0: <laughs> we're, being, we're being fair. Yeah. We're being nice. So I'll, um, I'll go first then. Um, on a scale of one to seven, how much of a UXer are you?
2: Ooh, that's a good one. I'd say seven.
0: Ooh, mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah, we forgot to say which one's most. Oh, obviously, seven means completely, and yeah. zero, one means, yeah. Well, okay. what's you, it, you get it.
2: What's it weighed against? Is it like UX first product, or is it just UX well, in general?
0: I'll go on to the second question. Okay. Now you're talking about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> on a scale of one to seven, how much of a product manager are you?
2: Oh, then I say seven. I'm both. <laughs> there Excellent.
0: we are, then.
1: <laughs> okay, mine. Uh, on a scale of one to seven, how well... Do people generally understand the meaning of MVP? (laughs) One. (laughs) 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 And on a scale of one to seven, how important is your job title?
2: Uh, Two.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we've we've gone for the uh, we've gone polarized on those. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, it's all or nothing.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think for the UX first product one, I don't I don't like choosing between them. I think I'm just a UXC product D person. <laughs> mm. So yeah. I'm a hundred percent both. Uh, mm. and if you ask me how much of a visual designer I am, I will tell you none. <laughs> I'm a, a, right. I would be more like a four. Uh, mm. but, and then for the MVP, nobody knows what an MVP means. I scare people when I, when I say that mm. word, I'll come in and say, Oh, we should really like do an MVP. Sometimes I slip and forget that I'm using the terms. Mm. Um, and I said that to one of my last clients, one of the developers there, and he was like, oh, no, we can't do that. And I was <laughs> like, what happened? What did I say? <laughs> Why did I offend is, you? Yeah.
0: Is it, is it the, isn't the problem, actually, everyone does think they know what an MVP is. Oh,
2: completely. Mm-hmm. They, well,
0: Rather I, than not know, because it then becomes their own interpretation. Yeah, they think they know it is. Mm-hmm. And no one has the same definition, so mm-hmm. it ends up just spiraling out of control. It's
2: really great, mm-hmm. too, because when I when I teach the MVP workshop that I do, um, most people come out of it and they're like, wow, that really changed my way of thinking about this stuff. I loved it. But then other people come in thinking that they know what an MVP is, like a minimum feature set is what they think. And then they'll be like, oh, this is terrible. You didn't teach me how to prioritize my backlog to come up with a minimum feature set. And I'm like, you missed mm-hmm. the entire point of this. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but that, that's what people want. They, uh, I think it's just more like also... The way that we think in hypotheses is actually very uncomfortable for people. They're not used to questioning what they know and what they don't know, so they mm. just want more of a recipe on how to how to build stuff, how to get it out, rather than how to think about building it and how to approach that. It's just, I think it's just the nature of human beings. So uh, it's it's even like it's more of a more of a battle than just even saying that people don't understand what MVPs is. It's a whole way of challenging how people think.
1: So if people want to get in contact with you, yeah. uh, is it Twitter? Or
2: yep, i um, at Lissy Jean on Twitter, or you can send me an email, Melissa at Products Labs. See, Products, I named my company ProdUXLabs.com. Everybody mm-hmm. pronounces it like that, though. But if you say it really fast, it sounds like products.
0: Products. Oh, I get it. Yep. Yeah. I, I would have said products.
2: See, oh, Honestly. you're like one of the first people. <laughs> I thought I was being really clever naming my company that, and then I realized how everybody pronounced mm. it. And I probably should have tested that first, but I didn't. Exactly. (laughs) Naming
0: naming your company is one of those things that's kind of difficult to test, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm
2: reading a book right now, and I had like a very strong commitment to naming it something. And I really wanted it. And then I started telling people what it was and I realized I might not be the great name. So I'm, now I'm testing like a bunch of AdWords to make sure I have the right name for it.
0: <laughs> ah, interesting. So the build trap is what yeah. it was meant to be. Is that actually the current title That's, or the old title or the new one?
2: That is the title that I'm getting with right now. I might change it to getting out of the build trap, which seems to be tracking better on AdWords right now. Um, mm-hmm. but I was wondering to put lean product management in the title. Mm. Uh, instead, because people said build trap kind of sounds like scary. Mm. So ah, interesting. or it sounds okay. a little bit like failure. And I was reading um, Gene Kim and uh, Kevin Bear's blog post about Neme the Phoenix Project and it was a very similar thing to what I'm going through right now. And they suggested testing it on AdWords, and I was like, That's a great idea. I should actually
1: a, it is a great idea do what a I idea. Yeah. <laughs> And you'll get lots of tweets now from our listeners about what they think it will be.
2: Excellent! I want to hear because then I'll then I'll know which one to go with. I'm, I'm challenging my own assumptions.
1: Mm. And I suggest that everyone visit your SlideShare page as well because all your presentations are really cool. Yeah. With their all their cat front pages, which I love.
2: Yeah, they're all they're all cats. Um, yeah. People think I'm a serious cat lady. I was just in Israel, and everybody everybody was like, "How many cats do you have?" And I actually have a dog. Um, who I hope wasn't barking because i have my headphones on but uh yeah i have a small dog it's actually smaller than a cat but i don't have any cats i just think Mm. they're hilarious when you put them in presentations
1: (laughs) excellent (laughs) great thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to talk to us melissa thank you thanks melissa
2: nice to meet you guys
0: (laughs) Well, that was an excellent chat. Uh, wow. Uh, Very nice uh, for Melissa to get out of bed um, and, and talk to us. Um, yes, on a Monday morning. On a on a snowy Monday morning. I just remember there was one question I wanted to ask her,
1: but we'll have to talk to her again. She, in her bio, she actually describes that she, there was a brief year in her career when she started company in Italy. Oh, yeah. And learned about the wonderful world of bureaucracy and risotto. <laughs>
0: that, yes, I saw that as well. And yeah, we can... Um, We'll talk to her about that um, on a future show. Yes, yeah. Um, I feel like I could have talked to Melissa for hours, and I could have. I don't think I would have stopped learning. Um, She's got a lot of experience Mm. um, and a lot of good thoughts around how we um, should and could be working.
1: Very pragmatic, very structured. Uh, I took uh, a lot of impression from her. The way she talked about how you can (laughs) ignore the backlog in certain cases. as you realised, that's something I, w- I want to do now more, uh, and focus more on the hypotheses uh, that actually bring value to the users.
0: As I mentioned at the beginning of the of the talk, Miller said that we've we've been, well, not just dipping our toes, but we've been submersing half of our bodies in this <laughs> in this topic of of where UX is going mm. and and who we are. I mean, over the years, it's been you know, we've been visiting this a lot about the definition of us, but recently we've been getting to more the, the kind of the exit strategy I suppose. Where where are we, where are we heading? And mm. um, I think it's, um, it's very refreshing to hear Melissa's thoughts around this as well.
1: Yeah, I think she cl- clarified a lot, actually. Mm. Uh, I got a lot out of that, what she said about the differences between product management and UX, but uh, The overlaps also,
0: too. Sorry? And the overlaps as well.
1: Yeah, especially the overlaps and uh, the way that uh, we, as UXers, perhaps should be more proud of what we're doing, and and see all the value we bring in a, from a product management perspective as well.
0: Yeah. But I think we can. I mean, it's a, this is a, something for a separate chat and a separate um, show. But the um, it'd be interesting. Well, I would think it'd be interesting to to get deeper into the um, the issues around the the job title or the job protection aspect of this that we we brought up. It's kind of why why are some people in some organisations so protective and so willing to sacrifice great collaboration um, to defend their title? What's the me- What are the mechanics and mechanisms behind that? Um, mm. And how do you solve it? Because I don't think just doing Lean UX, is as we've heard now, it's not the simple answer in all situations. Um, you've got to teach an entire way of working to an organisation. Yes. Effectively. So... So that was one of my notes I made down. This, just thinking about the the protectionism. How, why, and how do we does that exist? I actually made a, 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 a few notes. I don't normally write stuff down when we're talking to people. To be honest, Perry, um, I do my best to try and listen. <laughs> it takes That's of, what I try to do. It, it, t- it takes <laughs> enough of my brain power to to, to do that. But um, but with this chat with Melissa, I did actually scribble down um, uh, a couple of um, a couple of notes. Um, in particular, her um, when I when I asked her about the way in which she prioritized um, hypotheses. Mm. Uh, I, I wrote a few notes down about that. It was interesting that she didn't, didn't use effort as one of those yes, things. Yes, that
1: was really interesting as well because mm. that's absolutely a metric I would probably use yeah. for prioritizing. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, well, I mean, you've got to use it. Of course you've got to use it eventually. You've got to know how much effort mm. something's going to take, but, mm. but that's one of those things that you, you, uh, you kind of learn or you realize when you've got to the point of actually implementing, then you, you have an idea mm. about it. But earlier on, when you're deciding which direction you should go, then how much time isn't this isn't isn't the driving factor? Yeah. So that was that was really good and interesting to to hear. I and mean, the strength of customer problem versus value to business mm. was was the equation that she currently yeah, used.
1: Yeah, she she really works the way that she preaches in in the sense that she the way her tool sets are also. Minimum viable products, and they're simplified so that you can actually get going and iterate over and over again. You don't use seven metrics to decide or evaluate your, your backlog or your hypotheses. You use two metrics or two values, uh, and you go from there so that you actually can get going and talk about something.
0: Yeah. And um, we didn't talk this about this directly with her, but you could tell by the way she, um, Melissa was giving her answers that she's not stuck in her own dogma. Yes, she was, just that question again about the the prioritizing hypothesis. Um, she was willing, she, she was thinking about, okay, well, how am I working with this just now? Mm. You could tell that it was, she'd iterated this a lot and was mm. willing to iterate it and it mm. wasn't like, this is the answer I've come to. It's mm. just, this is what I'm working, this is how I'm working now, which seems to be giving results. And she doesn't want to
1: argue about how to write a user story and spend hours on that, <laughs> No, no. <laughs> like people do.
0: Yeah. Ah. Anyway, <laughs> um, you can um, you can find the show notes um, for this episode and every other episode, really, um, on uxpodcast.com. Um, you can follow us everywhere as um, UX Podcast. And you can also sign up for our backstage mailing list. Which w- you will want to do because
1: you want to find out who our next uh, people we'll be talking to are and... Uh, uh,
0: other stuff that we share it's a cozy little place very intimate yes. is our backstage mailing list um we're trying out two new ways to make this easier for you because um, filling a form isn't easy enough so you can <laughs> it's not an, if that's what i thought why i thought about it because if you're
1: on your mobile on the tube you don't want to go to the website you're listening to podcasts you just want to go you're probably on twitter listening to it
0: <laughs> well we're going to try out this anyway so one way you can um, you can subscribe to our backstage mailing list is just just DM us on Twitter your email address another way you can do it is just email us backstage at u- uxpodcast.com and both of those ways will make sure that you end up on the mailing list thank you for listening remember to keep moving see you on the other side